Hi, I'm Dan Primack, and welcome to Axios Recap, where we dig into one big story. Today is Wednesday, June 30th. Gas prices are up, temperatures are finally down in the Pacific Northwest, and we're focused on vaccination disparities. We're just a few days away from July 4th, and it's almost certain that America won't meet President Biden's goal of having 70% of all Americans at least partially vaccinated by the time that barbecues and fireworks are lit. And it matters, as we discussed in an episode last week, because the more contagious Delta variant is becoming our dominant strain of COVID-19. But focusing on that 70% threshold, whether reached or not, in many ways masks what's really happening with vaccinations in America, where rates vary widely among demographic groups and geographies. It can be a difficult thing to break out because so few states and vaccination sites actually track by race and ethnicity. But a new report from the Rockefeller Foundation in Dahlberg finds that the percentage of white Americans who've received at least one vaccine dose is around 1.4 times higher than the rate for black Americans and around 1.2 times higher than the rate for Hispanic Americans. This plays into a media narrative about people of color being less likely to want vaccinations, and there certainly is some history-justified hesitancy. But Rockefeller and Dahlberg find the disparity is much more about access to information and unequal distribution. The report also showed, on a more positive note, that the racial gap has begun to shrink a bit, with over 50% of current vaccinations going to people of color. The senior vice president for Rockefeller's U.S. Equity and Economic Opportunity Initiative, Otis Rowley, writes in a blog post, quote, it is crucial that we collect the data needed to identify who is having trouble getting vaccinated and why, end quote. Only with that information in hand can we hit that 70% goal and beyond. So in 15 seconds, we'll speak with Otis Rowley about demographics and geographic numbers, the story those numbers tell, and where we go from here. But first, this. We're joined now by Otis Rowley, Senior Vice President of the U.S. Equity and Economic Opportunity Initiative at the Rockefeller Foundation. So, Otis, let's start with the methodology and how you got the numbers you did, because lots of states and vaccination pop-ups don't track based on race and ethnicity. So how did you retrieve and calculate your data? So there were a couple of things that we did. First, we commissioned research with HIT strategies to look in communities of color in five U.S. cities that have majority Black and Latin, Latino uh, populations so that we could um, try to have a, a firm understanding in terms of how much information they needed around vaccines, if uh, they were having any current kind of trouble around vaccination, and their perception in terms of how they've been treated and health and public health kind of situations in the past. We also looked at aggregate data and data that has been collected by uh, CDC and the Kaiser Family Foundation as well, looking at both kind of broad total population data as well as specific race data as well. So when you commissioned this research, what did you expect to find and was that borne out? Actually, we went into it really with an open mind. Obviously, anecdotally, there was a lot out there saying that that minority populations, uh, people of color, uh, were really hesitant and averse to to the vaccination. We didn't know whether that was true or not, right? 
which was part of the reason why we did the analysis. And his strategies really helped us to get a better understanding that there was a lot less hesitancy and, and more a desire for what we say vaccine deliberation, meaning people wanted more information. They wanted access to the vaccine. They wanted access to information about what the vaccine was and what it did, as opposed to there just being a general feeling of, I don't want to take this vaccine. Some of that, just to be frank, is, is based in kind of historic kind of structural racism. And it was also based in the, the fact that, sadly, some individuals were not necessarily, you know, organizations were not necessarily kind of focusing in on communities of color. And so it was easier to just say, oh, they're hesitant uh, and don't want it, as opposed to really setting up a, a process that was equitable. What was the most surprising thing that you learned? I would say the most surprising feedback, and this was in all of the places, one of the most trusted voices was actually the new, was the new president. And that was surprising because a lot of what we know based on data is that hyper-local trusted voices are, are so important. And so the, whether they're the folks ministers or their teachers, principals, et cetera, and to see such high numbers for the new president as a trusted voice as it relates to this, particularly given what we had seen under the past administration, that was a big surprise. Let's get into these numbers. Which demographic groups in the U.S. kind of fell out of step with the rest of the country in terms of vaccination rates? Overall, particularly in our, the latest numbers that we're seeing, there's still a significant amount of growth that needs to occur in vaccination for Latino and African-American populations. been very pleased in terms of overall BIPOC numbers being above the line in terms of absence of disparity, particularly among indigenous First Nations populations, Asian populations. But we still need significant improvement in terms of Black, African-American, um, and Latino, although we have seen particularly over the last four weeks, significant growth um, in the vaccination numbers for Latino populations, but it has been flat and decreasing in the African-American community. Based on what you just said, how does the rate for Black Americans compare to the overall decline of vaccinations across the U.S.? Unfortunately, the disparity is, is, is still significant, though we're seeing a decrease in overall vaccination numbers. The amount for African-Americans is, is significantly less than, than the overall number. On the other side of the spectrum, there's been a huge success story in terms of numbers when it comes to American Indians and Alaska Natives. What's happening there? I think the federal government took the correct approach in really trusting First Nations, Native populations in terms of that they would know best how to to prioritize and how to deliver both the messages and the vaccines. And because of that uh, collaborative relationship, because the federal government took a backseat and actually trusted the hyperlocal uh, voices and leaders within that community, they have had really great success. And I think it's a model of how we need to approach public health throughout our nation. You wrote a blog post about this report, and one of the things you highlighted on the geography side was Colorado as a place where vaccine equity was a state-level goal, but it wasn't really achieved. What other places in the country tell stories of success or failure? The successful places are those places that are prioritizing equity. In the city of Newark, New Jersey, um, in Oakland, 
in Houston, uh, we are seeing uh, a prioritization being placed on ensuring that uh, there is an equitable distribution of both information and the vaccine, that they are really trying to go to where the people are. We've seen great success also in, in Seattle, where they've used mobile units to to really deliver uh, the vaccine, uh, changing EMT workers and uh, training them to to deliver the vaccine as opposed to waiting for the citizens to, to come to them. When you adopt an equity-first approach, collecting and analyzing the right data, really paying attention to culturally competent communication um, and vaccine delivery methodologies, those are the communities that are are succeeding and, uh, and where we're seeing an increase in vaccine access and overall conf- confidence. You just referred to culturally competent information, and you've talked a few times about access to information being a barrier over the last several months. What did you learn about access to information and how it's changed? Initially, while there was a lot of rhetoric around the importance of being equitable in the distribution of the vaccine, the rhetoric did not necessarily match the delivery methodology that was um, being advanced by both the uh, federal government and state governments. And so what we are seeing, though, is great improvements there. So um, if, in fact, for example, we prioritize, when I say we, I mean the nation, prioritized elderly as kind of tier one, um, and yet we, we had an over-dependence on technology for people to register for for, for those vaccines, right? If you are prioritizing the elderly, one of the things that you would have done and should have done uh, to have an equitable approach, right, is to prioritize telephonic um, methodologies, call centers, indirect contact um, as much as you could do within a COVID-safe environment. So we've really, we as a nation, I think, have been doing some fail fast, fix fast, learn fast approaches to this. And and where I'm, what I'm seeing is the differentiation now occurring, both in um, a metropolitan and in rural areas in which we are saying the first approach using online registrations and then realizing, hold on, many people don't necessarily have online capabilities, and then shifting to call centers, utilizing transportation methodologies, point-to-point transportation methodologies, Uber and Lyft and other services are, are volunteering and donating so that people can go directly to vaccine sites, um, is really trying to remove any barriers to access. And we're seeing that across the country. You're sounding fairly optimistic. And and you write in this blog post that what's most important about data isn't the data, but it's how you use it to understand who we can help and how we help them. So given what we know about the numbers at this point, what can we do to better inform and empower people to get vaccinated who haven't been? It is really formalizing those messages in a way so that they can be heard. And I know that sounds overly simple then, but it's uh, common sense isn't necessarily often common, right? It is really crafting messages with the audience in mind and helping to allow that audience to help to actually design those messages as well, right? And being responsive to the demands in place. But also to your larger question around the data too, I think looking down the road, we need better race and ethnicity reporting standards, right? So that in the future, because there will be a COVID-23 potentially, right, that we're able to apply standards to all locations and share a goal of truly having an equitable approach to vaccine delivery across the nation. Otis Rowley of the Rockefeller Foundation, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for the opportunity. Welcome back. What we're watching today is the Manhattan District Attorney's Office, which is expected to charge the Trump Organization and its chief financial officer with tax-related crimes, the first criminal charges in a three-year investigation. Specifically, they'll allege tax avoidance on so-called fringe benefits to employees, things like apartments and private school tuitions. 
Why it matters is this could be the first in a series of legal dominoes that lead to Trump himself, even though the former president isn't being personally charged today. That's particularly true if prosecutors can manage to get cooperation from that CFO, Alan Weisselberg, who's worked for the Trump family since 1973, which means he'd almost certainly know where any financial bodies are buried. All of this, of course, comes as Trump has begun holding political rallies once again, perhaps ahead of a 2024 campaign to retake the White House, a campaign that would be much harder to wage were the candidate under criminal indictment for tax fraud. And we're done. Big thanks for listening. And to my producers, Naomi Shaven, Sabina Singani, and Alex Ugiara. Please be sure to leave us a review. And if you're not already subscribed to or following the podcast, do so. Have a great national social media day, which really seems to be every day. And we'll be back tomorrow with another Axios Recap.